0: Today's reading is on page 976 of the Church Bibles and it's Matthew 11 beginning at verse 1 through to 19. After Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. To what then can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others, We played the flute for you and you didn't dance, we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I'll lead us in a prayer as we begin. There's a verse I was reading this morning. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified we praise you our heavenly father for your word of grace and we pray father that as we hear that word this morning you would change us by your spirit so that we may be assured of the inheritance uh, which we will see uh, in the future and we ask this in jesus name amen Do you ever mistake the success of a message for the truth of a message? Do you ever mistake the success of a message for the truth of a message? We often assume, don't we, that if a message is successfully received, that it must be true. Uh, for example, most people believe that the world's a sphere, that it orbits the sun, uh, It's a pretty successful message, But very few of us, I'm guessing, have actually tested that idea. I'm still waiting for Virgin Galactic to get off the ground to be able to test it. But we're kind of happy the message is true, because it's so successful. Almost everyone accepts it, and I do as well, just in case you're wondering. But the counterpoint to that is that if a message doesn't look very successful, we think it can't be true. Uh, In the second century, the Roman poet Juvenal um, wrote about a black swan and um, everyone assumed that uh, black swans couldn't exist. But at the end of the 17th century, black swans were discovered in Australia. I mean, the message wasn't very successful. Hardly anyone thought they existed. But it didn't mean it was untrue. What about the Christian message, the Gospel? Do we ever mistake the success of the Gospel, how it's received, for its Truth. Do you ever find yourself doubting the truth of the gospel because of how it's received by others? It's success. You go into the office on a Monday morning and you talk to people on the desks around you about what you heard Sunday morning and you're met with blank faces. Or you walk around Festival Place and you're struck by the fact that they attract a lot more people than we do here at St. Mary's. Or you hope that God would have changed your circumstances. But after many prayers, you're still struggling with the same struggles as ever. And you can't help thinking to yourself, as you're confronted with what seems to be a lack of success, is this really true? And you're tempted to lose confidence in the truth of the Gospel. Now, if we identify with those thoughts, then we need to hear Matthew chapter 11 this morning. See, in this chapter, Jesus shows us that the truthfulness of the message does not rest on what we consider as success. Now, how do we see this? Well, let's um, set up a little background, bit of background to Matthew 11. Uh, Matthew 11 continues a section in the Gospel that focuses on the response to Jesus' message. Uh, Jesus has just sent the twelve disciples out uh, back in chapter 10 and um, look at what he says in chapter ten, verse seven. Turn this back over the page. He says um, to his disciples, chapter ten, verse seven: "Preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near." That's the message taken out. And you might expect that that message that God's kingdom is is finally here would be something that changes everything and everyone. God's king is here. It's a new era but in chapter 11, it's very striking, Matthew puts the brakes on and shows us that there are people who doubt and there are people who resist his kingdom. And the reason I think Matthew places chapter 11 where he does is to show us that the message of the kingdom does not necessarily fit how we consider success. You'd expect the disciples to come back and talk about all the triumphant things they've done, but they don't. It's resisted, it's rejected. And so if we, as St. Mary's, are to remain confident in the Gospel as we take it out to our offices, our families, our town, we need to see that this truthfulness comes from somewhere else. And we get there by these three points on your service sheet. We, first of all, need to understand the signs. Then we need to understand the times. And then we need to understand the response. I was pretty chuffed with the rhyming of the first two. I'm afraid I ran out of steam by the third one. First of all, then, understanding the signs. See, in verses 1 to 6, uh, Jesus says that we need to understand his signs if we're to be confident in the truth. Uh, John the Baptist uh, is in prison, and he sends a message to Jesus in verse 3. And he asks this Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, what's John the Baptist asking uh, there? Have a think about it. What's, um, What's he asking? Well, the one to come was. The subject of what John the Baptist proclaimed. His message was about the coming Messiah or the coming King. Uh, Back in in chapter 3, you don't need to turn there, but back in chapter 3 he says this, I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I. So what's he asking Jesus here? He's saying, are you that one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that I spent my life telling others about? It's shocking, isn't it? John's John's having what we might call a wobble about the truth of Jesus. Now, if you read some of the commentaries on this, um, uh, some very good commentaries on this, in fact, but they they can't imagine John the Baptist having this much of a wobble. And so they argue that it's not really John who's speaking, but it's really him kind of asking for the sake of his disciples. But actually the text reads quite clearly that it's John's question and Jesus replies directly to John. Jesus thinks it's John who's asking. I think part of the reason that people get confused is because they miss John's situation. Uh, Matthew flags it up right at at, at the start in verse 2. Now um, there's this uh, guy called Cephas. He's an ancient historian and he's absolutely fascinating to read because he writes about lots of the characters, excuse me, in the New Testament, and, um, uh, even though he's not uh, in the New Testament himself. And he says that John the Baptist was locked up here in um, Machaerus, I think it's called. And uh, just look at it. This is Herod's palace and his prison. It's on the top of a huge mountain on the edge of the nation. I mean, it's the sort of place you expect to be in a movie scene, wouldn't you? I don't know if you've ever seen the, the Dark Knight Rises. It's like the prison out of that. I mean, just put yourself in John's shoes for a moment. He spent his whole life telling people to get ready for God's King. That the Messiah was coming in judgment. That people needed to turn, that God's kingdom was breaking in. But now where does he find himself? He's in chains, alone, silence. On the edge of the nation. I don't know about you, but I can see why he asks, is this it? Is Jesus really the coming one? I mean, the plan's not looking very successful, is it? I mean, how many of us have found ourselves in a situation and thought, is this right? Is God really doing the right thing? And how many of us, because of our situation, have then doubted the truth? Is Jesus really who he says he is? How can Jesus be the good shepherd when I seem to be taking this dark turn? See, John, I think, is actually like us all, really, isn't he? He he seems to um, be struck by what seems to be a lack of success, and he has a wobble over the truth of Jesus. Now, how does Jesus counter this? Well, look at Jesus' answer in verse 5. It's absolutely fascinating. He says this, The blind receive sight, the lame walk, and those who have leprosy are cured. The death here, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. So Jesus here is preach, um, pointing back to the signs that he's just done in the previous chapters. If you remember last year, we went through those chapters, and we saw the miracles, and we saw Jesus uh, proclaiming, uh, blessed are the poor. But how does that answer help John? in his situation. What Jesus is saying to John, look, you should have understood what these signs meant. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation with uh, a parent, or perhaps you are a parent and you've done this. Um, Imagine a scenario, you're you're kind of discussing with a parent some issue, Brexit or something, and it's all getting a bit heated, and your parent wants to remind you um, that you're getting a bit too big for your boots. And so they say something like, like this to you. They say, I changed your nappies. I bathed you. I took you to school. I put food on your table. What are they saying when they do that? Where they're reminding you that they're your parent. But it's more subtle than that, isn't it? There's a little bit of a rebuke. There's a bit more poetry to it. It's saying, look, know your status. They they list a a typical um, set of parenting jobs and it's communicating who they are. Maybe you've done it yourself. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's reminding John of what he's done, what his jobs, the jobs uh, that he's done. But he's doing it using the language of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah, why does he go there? Well, Isaiah gives us a blueprint of what God's king will do, what the Messiah will do. He, he promises a day when the Messiah will come and save his people. And, and look at how Isaiah describes this saviour. I'll read a couple of these out. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Chapter 42, hear you deaf, look you blind and see. Or chapter 61, the spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Do you recognise the language? Jesus is using it in Matthew 11 to say, look, I'm him. Look at all the miracles I did. I'm, you should know, I am the one to come. It's worth saying in passing that um, this is the primary reason for the miracles in the Gospels. They're not there for us to try and copy or because we should expect to do the same. They're signposts pointing towards the Messiah. And John is looking at his prison cell, he's looking at his chains and and thinking, this doesn't seem very successful. But Jesus says, look, my identity does not rest in what you consider to be success. My identity rests on the fact that I have fulfilled the blueprint of the Messiah. It can be so easy, can't it, to to focus on our circumstances and assume that that affects the truthfulness of Jesus. Uh, In my role as a curate, I get to chat to a lot of people and um, a lot of people who say to me something like this, "I, I used to be a Christian but I lost my faith because this illness struck me, or this person died, or this struggle came. And I want to say to that person, very sen- hopefully sensitively, you know, why does that mean that Jesus isn't who he says he is? I mean, suffering is hard, of course. Our situations can be very painful, and sometimes we wish life would go differently. But all the tears we shed do not dilute for one bit the truth that Jesus is our King. So we need to understand the signs if we're to remain confident in the Gospel. But secondly, we also need to understand the times. See, in um, in verses 7 to 15, we turn from Jesus' assessment of John to John's assessment of... No, that's the wrong way around, isn't it? John's assessment of Jesus was the first bit. Uh, Now we turn to Jesus' assessment of John. And uh, Jesus shows us that the coming of John has changed the world forever. Uh, Jesus asks uh, the crowds in verse 7 why they went to John's gigs, why it was that they got front row tickets to uh, John the Baptist, why they spent their weekends listening to a hairy man in Camel's... I said this earlier, I'm not sure if John the Baptist was actually hairy or whether he wore Camel's hair, Look that up later, let me know. But um, anyway, it was pretty remarkable to to look at, wasn't it? He was eating locusts, he had camel's hair. Why did they go and do that each weekend? And Jesus says that the answer comes in verse 9. It's because you thought he was a prophet. Someone who spoke from God. But the thing is, the people had failed to take it on to the next level. If John was a prophet, then that had changed the world forever. Now, why is that? Well, look at what Jesus says about John the Baptist in verse 10. He says this, This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Now hopefully you've got a little footnote in your Bibles there. Is that right? Footnote? And I think it says that it comes from Malachi chapter 3. Is it just my Bible that has that? No, we're getting a few nods of the heads. Yes, so Malachi chapter 3. And um, that probably doesn't mean a huge amount to us, because um, we're not very familiar with Malachi 3 compared to this audience. But actually, that is hugely significant. Um, Have a look at what Malachi 3 says. Here's, um, Here's the quote from the book. I will send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Just have a look at that verse and ask yourself, who does the messenger prepare for? Who does the messenger prepare for? Do you see in the middle there? the messenger will come, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. It's the Lord. God himself will come. In my previous job in um, the city, I worked in a uh, first floor office and um, it would look out onto one of the busiest roads in the city. And um, this road was um, quite one, one of the important roads across London. So you would often get um, the prime minister or the government... or or some of the royal family, using this road to travel uh, across London. And every now and again, you'll be at your desk, kind of typing away, and um, you'll just be interrupted by the sound of whistles in the distance. And uh, then those whistles would get a bit louder, and then you would hear some motorbike engines... And then suddenly, out of nowhere, police motorbikes would be all over the road shouting at people to stop where they are, to close off the junctions, and they'd be whistling, stopping traffic everywhere. And you can just imagine, can't you, the city, you know, it's pretty busy, and then suddenly the whole place would go deadly silent, and everyone would stop. And then on the horizon, you would suddenly see several black Range Rovers speed through Never saw who it was. I guess it could have been the Duke of Edinburgh with the speed that they were going. (laughs) That's the picture in Malachi. A a messenger is coming on the road and God is following. And Jesus' point to the crowds here is, look, the prophet has come. The fact that you went to hear him, the fact that he had such a following testifies to that. So draw the obvious conclusion God is here. His kingdom has broken in. Now, why does Jesus have to say this? Well, I think we get a hint of it in in verse 12. He says there, His kingdom has been advancing since John the Baptist, but forceful people lay hold of it. Uh, Jesus' point is that the kingdom's opposed. People are going to resist it. So it's not always going to look like a success. It's very easy, isn't it, to look at our world and and think, what is happening with God's kingdom? Uh, last week, I was reading about um, the early rain covenantal church in China. You may have read about it. Uh, the church's pastor there, Wang um, Zai, uh, was arrested, along with his wife, the elders, the deacons, and dozens of members. Just imagine that, Clive, Jefferson, Philip, lots of us, being arrested. And many of the church are unaccounted for after police raids in the area. And when you read it, you think to yourself, who's looking powerful here? Who's winning? Is it God's kingdom when the Chinese government can lock up people? Or closer to home, perhaps we see, we we wonder that when we see that people are so apathetic to the message we've got. You know that your family, that you try and tell them, but they're, they're so unmoved by what are you here on a Sunday morning. And it, you can't help thinking, can you, has much changed. Is Jesus' kingdom very powerful when people don't seem to be very moved in our culture? And Jesus says, look, don't look at that. Understand the times. Understand that the world has changed. The messenger has come. God's kingdom has broken in. I love the fact that um, our culture subtly testifies to this truth every time we write our date. Um, we write 2019 um, because it's 2,019 years since the coming of Jesus. I know there's a counting error. Um, there's approximately that, so don't come and tell me afterwards. But um, we write 2019 AD, Anno Domini. Is that how you pronounce it, Latin speakers? Anno Domini. Take my word for it. In the year of the Lord. We write that because we live after the Lord has come. See, B.C. has become A.D. God's kingdom has broken into our world. See, we might think that not much has changed, that history kind of has rolled on and on since the Big Bang, but Jesus shows us that the tectonic plates of history have shifted, and that we stand this side of the fault line when Jesus' kingdom has come. It might not always feel like a success, That message might be opposed. People might seem unimpressed by the truth, but that doesn't mean that the truth isn't true. The kingdom has broken into our world. But you might still be asking the question, why don't we have more people react? I mean, if it's true, why don't we have more success? Well, Jesus wants us to understand not just the times or the signs, but finally, in our third point, response we should expect. So you might expect, mightn't you, that um, given that Jesus is the Messiah, given that his kingdom is here, that it would be embraced by everyone. But Jesus warns us this will not be the case. Just have a look at Jesus's assessment of the people in verse 16. He says this, to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others, we played the flute for you. And you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Children hanging around in shopping centres is not a 21st century phenomenon. It happened in Jesus' day. And as these children hung out, they would play a little game where they would pretend to be at a wedding. And so they would sing a wedding song, think something like the Macarena, and um, hopefully that would get the other group up and dancing. But then they would pretend to be at a funeral and they would sing a sad song. Think anything by James Blunt at this point. And um, hopefully that would move them to, um, to beat their breasts and mourn. But in this game, no one wants to play. They sing the Macarena and the children just fold their arms and look grumpy. And so they sing a song to make fit their mood, but then they unfold their arms and start to look happy. And Jesus says the first hearers of him are like these children. See, they heard John the Baptist's message, but they looked at his minimalist life in the desert, and they said he has a demon. But then Jesus came, and he went to all the parties, and people said he was too indulgent. We have a phrase for this, I think. We say, there's just no pleasing some people. And you hear it, don't you, when people criticise Christianity for being boring but then they don't want people to be too over the top about it. Or people criticise the message for not being intellectually credible, but then they say it's not accessible enough. And we think we're being impartial and enlightened in dismissing the Christian message, but Jesus says, no, it's just an excuse not to have to respond. It's a way of keeping Jesus at arm's length in our lives. But notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 19. He says, wisdom is proved right by her deeds. We have a phrase for this as well. We say, the proof is in the pudding. See, in the end, it will be proved right. See, John and Jesus may not have moved the crowds. They may have been dismissed. But actually, that doesn't affect their message. One iota. Their message is still true. And in the end, on the last day, every single person who has ever lived will see that that is the case now why does that matter well it's so easy isn't it to confuse acceptance with truth i've got a group of friends who um i've been sharing the christian message with ever since i became a christian i mean we've stayed up long into the early hours of the morning having conversations about different things but not one of them has actually come to the point of putting their trust in jesus hopefully they've got a lot closer But they're not at that point yet. And often I've gone home and i thought to myself, have I got this right? Am I the crazy one here? Have I got things wrong? It's hard, isn't it, being in the minority all the time. But Jesus says to us, do not be surprised. This message will be dismissed. It will not be received by everyone. But don't for a minute think there's a problem with the message. It's not a problem with the message. It's a problem with the hearers. See, even John the Baptist, with all his charisma and all his camel hair and all his persuasion power, was dismissed as demon-possessed. Even Jesus, imagine this, even Jesus with his well-chosen and wise and true words could not convince people of his message. But it is still true. See, success does not imply truthfulness See, if we understand the signs, if we understand the times, if we understand the response, we know that the message of the kingdom is true, whether it feels successful or not. And Jesus gives us the clearest demonstration of this principle in his death and resurrection. See, at the death of Jesus, the message of the kingdom appeared to flatline in more ways than one. See, this great king, this Messiah, was pinned to a wooden cross. The the great hope for a new world looked extinguished with Jesus' last intake of air. The great promise of a new kingdom was crushed by the might of the Romans. But it was at this low, when success appeared to be eclipsed, that Jesus proved the truth of his kingdom. See, and what seemed to be defeat for this king was in fact his moment of victory, as he saved his people from their sins. What seemed to be the crushing of this kingdom was in fact its birth, as he was raised to new life to reign over a new people uh, forever. See, as we're seeking to share this message, in the office, in the tennis club, on our streets. As Jesus calls us to do, it it might feel weak, and it often does. And we might often question its success, but the cross shows us that success is different to truth. See, this message is true. Whether we feel it succeeds or not, we can have confidence as we obey Jesus in declaring it where he has placed us. Let's pray. We praise you, our Lord Jesus, that you are the one to come, the one who opens blind eyes, the ones who allow the deaf to hear the one who preaches good news to the poor. Please, Lord Jesus, we ask by your Spirit, give us confidence in the truthfulness of your kingdom. Amen.